Thank you for tuning into our podcast. We hope that you enjoy this message. You are welcome to visit us at 1800 Apostle Johnson Way in Annapolis, Maryland, Sunday mornings at 10 a.m. And be sure to check us out at www.thefcca.org. Let us pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we just want to thank you. We thank you, God, because you do not leave us in our mess. You don't leave us in our pain and our grief and our suffering. You always provide a way out. Even though the way out sometimes may be difficult. But nevertheless, you never leave us nor forsake us. For you walk with us. As the word says through the shadows of the valley of death, you we walk with us. And you stand with us. And we just thank you. We thank you for your grace and your mercy. And God, we thank you for this time of celebration, this time of worship, this time where all of your sons and daughters, when we come together to give you praise and to give you glory. And now, Father, as we come to this moment of your word, of bringing your preach word, for we have heard your word in song, and we've heard it through prayer. And now, God, as we bring your spoken word, we pray for a fresh anointing right now, a fresh anointing upon this, your vessel, that you anoint me afresh, and I pray for a fresh anointing upon the listeners as you prepare our hearts and our minds to receive what you desire for us to have. We thank you and we praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. You may be seated. We are going to look at a couple of passages. So today we're going to be starting um, a new series, if you will, and it's going to be coming out of the book of Revelation. I believe God is directing us to the book of Revelation and particularly going to be talking about the seven churches of Asia Minor, but I believe we're being directed there for two reasons, or three reasons really. Number one, as you know, we're in the season of Advent, where we are celebrating the first coming of Jesus Christ when he came as a babe wrapped in swaddling clothes. But we are, we're, in reality, we are in the second Advent, where we are now looking forward to the return of Jesus Christ. And that second Advent, of course, began when Jesus rose from the dead and went to heaven and sat on the right hand of God the Father Almighty. And from then forward... All of God's children, all of God's believers, we have been looking forward to his second coming. He will return again. And the third reason uh, we're being directed is because that we've been sensing and feeling that God is inviting our church to enter into a season um, to refocus, to refresh, and to recommit to what God has called us to do and uh, for him and in his kingdom. Now, one thing about the book of Revelation... How many of you have heard, oh, don't go over there because that's some strange stuff over there in the book of Revelation. Anybody with me on that? I remember uh, Erica was reminding me, I think one day when she was younger, and she was homesick and Ricky was babysitting her, and he was having Bible study. And he told her, whatever you do, don't go into Revelation. Leave that alone. Don't, we, we're not going to go over in there. But yet, if you, if you turn with me to uh, Revelation, the very first chapter, if you will. And if you look at the third verse, and I'm coming out of the NIV version, 
It says, blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy, and blessed are those who hear it and take it to heart what is written, because the time is near. So here the scripture is telling us we are blessed if we read it and to read aloud and to receive it because the revelation of Jesus Christ is for God's people. It is for us so that we will know and how to prepare for his coming. And truth be told, yeah, there are some things in Revelation that the symbolism and some of the the phraseology and terminology can be difficult to, to get our minds wrapped around. But at the end of the day, it is telling us what are those things that are to come. And to be honest with you, I'm one of those pre-tribulation people. I think half of the things that are going to happen in, in Revelation, we're going to be gone anyway. The church is going to be up and out of here. That's my thought. Because it tends that when we look through Scripture, that when, when, when trial times come, God has a way of removing his people out of the way. Look at what Noah, you know, when put Noah in the ark. Before the rain, he had it already prepared for his people so they won't be going through the difficulties and the challenges. And so revelation for us is from Jesus Christ, and he's revealing to us those things that are to come, but he's also revealing to us how to prepare and so that we can be a people of, of hope and a people of faith and not one of fear, because again, I don't think we're going to be here. Can the church say amen? amen. So as we look in, into Revelation, we now look that he's speaking to John, John the Apostle John. This is the same John that um, the Gospel of John that we find. It's the same John who wrote 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John. And John is exiled out on the Isle of Patmos, or island of Patmos. And he's been sent out there because John, John was just one of them preachers that was going to preach the truth of Jesus Christ regardless of what anybody said and done. And because John wouldn't shut up, they exiled him out on the island of Patmos. And that was, uh, uh, the island of Patmos was what you would call a sterile island, if you will. It's an island that didn't produce vegetation. It was just one of those barren places. And that's what the Romans used to put the people out there that they just got tired of. It was a prison island. They put John out there on the Isle of Patmos, and they figured if we put you out here, you ain't got nobody to preach to. You're just going to shut up because we can't do anything to stop you. But now if you roll over to John, and let's, I mean, pardon me, too. I'm staying in 1 John, and if we look at, um, let's starting at 9. Verse 9, this is John. He says, I, John, your brother and companion in the suffering and kingdom and patient endurance that ours in, in Jesus was on the island of Patmos because of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. On the Lord's day, I was in the spirit. We're going to stop right there. He said, on the Lord's day, I was in the spirit. Check this out. John is out on the island. They put him out there where there was nobody else out there, maybe but some other prisoners. They put him out there so he could shut up. But John wasn't shutting up. John was having church all by himself out there on the island of Patmos. Let me tell you, it is one thing to praise God in the good days. It is one thing to give him the praise when life is going well and everything is just uh, hunking and doing well and everything is just how you like it. But it's another thing when you have to give praise or when you choose to give praise when things are going rough. Anybody had to praise God when things just wasn't going well? That is what you call the sacrifice of praise. The sacrifice of praise is praising God when you don't want to. 
The sacrifice of praise is when it's going to cost you something. It's going to cost you something to open up your lips. It's going to cost you something to raise your hands. It's going to cost you something to get out of the bed and get up and go out into into corporate worship. It's going to cost you something. And John was given the sacrifice of praise. And in the midst of his praise, he hears a thundering voice as he says, and here it is, Jesus is speaking to him. And he says, write on a scroll what you see and send it to the seven churches, to Ephesus. Smyrna, Pergadon, Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, and Laodicea. I turned around to see the voice that was speaking to me. And when I turned, I saw seven golden lampstands. And among the lampstands was someone like a son of man, dressed in a robe, reaching down to his feet with a golden sash around his chest. The hair on his head was white like wool, as white as snow, and his eyes were like blazing fire. His feet were like bronze glowing in a furnace, and his voice was like the sound of rushing waters. And in his right hand, he held seven stars, and coming out of his mouth was a sharp double-edged sword. His face was like the sun shining in all its brilliance. And when I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. And then he placed his right hand on me, And said, do not be afraid. I am the first and the last. I am the living one. I was dead. Now look, I am alive forever and ever, and I hold the keys of death and Hades. Write, therefore, what you have seen, what is now and what will take place later. The mystery of the seven stars that you saw in my right hand and the seven golden lampstands is this. The seven stars are the angels of the seven churches. That's the preachers of the seven churches. These are seven real churches. And the seven lampstands are the seven churches. And so he's telling telling John, this is what I want you to do. I want you to write this down because I'm getting ready to dictate to you some letters. As we have shared several weeks ago, God is inviting our church to enter into the season to to refocus, refresh, and to recommit to what God has called us to be and what he has called us to do in his kingdom. And part of that process is to pause and to reassess spiritually where we are as individuals and as a congregation. Now, one of the main themes the Bible teaches us is that wherever God is at work, you can rest assured that the enemy is not far behind. Because if God is at work in your family, if he is at work in your relationship, if he is at work in your community and in your church, you can rest assured that the enemy is seeking ways to bring disruption to whatever it is God is trying to do in your life or whatever he's trying to do into the life of the church. So as a congregation, we have to be even more diligent about how the enemy can get us off focus and off track of God's purpose for our lives and for the mission that he has called us to. And keep in mind that Satan's job is to do whatever he can to hinder or destroy God's work. Satan, again, wants to make every church, he wants to make every ministry, he wants to make every leader, He wants to make every believer, he wants every one of us to become ineffective in our work. And so his purpose is, is to stop you, 
to stop me from being effective and to stop this congregation. That is his job, that is his mission, and that is what his, his whole plan is. And so that's why, as members of Christ's body, that all of us must always be aware and on guard of the enemy's tactics. And we, we must, we must be, be conscious of the fact and not be lackadaisical in it and really understand and realize that the enemy doesn't want any of us to progress. He doesn't, he, he doesn't want unity in the church. He doesn't, he, doesn't, he doesn't want it in the ministry. He wants to bring division. And we have to be conscious of that fact and be aware that sometimes when people are coming at us in a negative way, you know, you can have people smiling at you, but they really don't like you. You know what I mean? You know what I'm saying? They, they, they be out there. They really don't like you. They're just tolerating, you know. Just, you know what I mean? But you, you have to understand who is that behind it. Because the enemy will use whatever he can, including our attitudes and whatever, to bring. And also, as a church, we must be aware of the fact that he will try to introduce false doctrine into the church, false teachings into the church. He will, he will make, he will, he will attempt us to, he would tempt us to, to compromise God's truth, to, to replace God's truth with what we believe to be true. He, he will do all of those things. And, and what he will also do, he will, he will use our disappointments. He will use our frustrations. He will use misunderstandings. Oh, I thought you said this, but God, but you meant this. He, he will use um, all of those things. Uh, um, and, and people, he will use people not speaking to each other because of misunderstanding. Anybody ever been in a family or been on the job where folks stop talking? How many of you supervisors out there or managers, you know what it's like when people just got you, read you all wrong, calling you, saying everything about you, and it's not even true. They haven't even sat down and had a conversation with you. Anybody ever been there? Anybody end up being in a family member and you don't even know why that family member don't even speak to you anymore? Yeah, I mean, anybody ever had that happen? You've been, you're, sitting down, you're sitting down at Thanksgiving dinner and you suddenly realize, they ain't speak to me since I've been here. I wonder what's that all about. So the enemy would do that. He, 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 will, he will bring false spirits. And it was one of the worst things to be in a room where a foul spirit comes in. And a foul spirit, when somebody comes in with a negative attitude, can change the entire atmosphere. You know what I mean? Just kind of bring a, a, a heaviness in the place because they're coming in with an attitude and it can change. We have to be conscious about that, conscious about that it can create division because one thing that the enemy understands clearly and keep in mind, even though he's powerful, we know he's not what? All powerful. But one thing we, have, we, we cannot underestimate him. We cannot write him off. We cannot just walk around like he doesn't exist or he is just not a factor. He is a factor. And we have to recognize that. Because what he will do and what he's good at, he looks for ways to bring division and to divide a church and to divide a family, to divide a ministry. He would do things until we can't get along with each other. And he, what's his job is, is he wants you to not get along until eventually it begins to break down and it breaks up. And, 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 you, and, and so because there's one thing the word tells us that, that it cannot, we cannot stand together if, if we are divided. And so he would use gossip and he would use jealousy. He would use suspicion. He would use pride. He would use relational issues, challenges, and crises, anything to take our focus 
off of God and to focus on ourselves, on our issues, and on our problems. He will send us home to bedside Baptist. He will do whatever he can to keep us away. And so when people, um, he, he chooses, when God chooses, he wants us to be on the other hand, he wants us to be determined to stand strong in the midst of these challenges. He, he wants us to have a discerning spirit in spite of, so that we know what is going around. He wants us to live peaceably with all people. And when God's people are quick, when we are quick to address issues um, that could cause division, what Satan then will do is he now will use another tactic. If he comes in, he says, I can't break up this family. I can't break up this ministry. I can't break up this church. So the next thing what he would do is that he would do something else, is that he would bring persecution and he would bring difficulties. Sometimes you're going through what you're going through is because you've been standing firm on God's word. So if he can't bring you down one way, he's going to try to bring you down with some crises in your life. You know, there are times where stuff started happening in your life and you wonder where in the world did that come from? Who's doing this? What is this? He will bring persecution. I can't get them this way. I'm going to put them through some hardship. I'm going to see what they're going to do now. You know, having that Job experience where before you deal, get over one thing, here comes something else come knocking at your door. And then while you're dealing with that thing knocking at your door, here comes a letter in the mail or a text message or an email, something that's coming along, and to the point where you start freaking out when the telephone rings. You start going through changes when somebody starts calling you up because you're going like, I don't know what's on the other end of this line, and I don't know if I want to pick it up right now. That's when he would start using persecution, put you through some changes, all in an effort to discourage you and to frustrate you. But then, here's the other thing. Then you get to the point where even persecution can't bring you down. You know, Minister Kim preached about that the other day, last week, when, I mean, week before last, when she was preaching about when you get, just got get knocked down, you just get popped back up again. You know, so when you do pop back up again, I will never look at Jack in the Box the same way. I do want to say that. <laughs> but when you do, when you do pop, pop back up again, then he goes for the next thing. I can't get him through persecution and frustration. They just keep coming back for more. They just act, they still giving God the praise even though they're going through hell. They're still praising God even though they don't know what in the world, they don't know where the paycheck is coming from. They still giving God the praise even though they got a bad report from the doctors. They still giving God the praise. I can't deal with them. So I gotta go to the next level. And so the next level he goes to is he does this. He goes to, to he uses what I believe is one of the most treacherous tools that can be used on someone and that is when he can't deceive us when he can't frustrate us he then goes to the tool of uh, um, that is masked behind a facade the facade of success when he can't deceive us divide us or frustrate us what he will often do is replace the passion and the fervor of serving God with just being content and satisfied with where you are. Let me just say it this way. Sometimes success, if it's not handled properly, can be a bad thing 
Because when you start succeeding and don't keep in mind where you have come from or resting on your laurels or resting on your accomplishments, your awards and your certificates and how successful you are, when you start doing that, he then comes in because then God becomes moving into second place instead of first place. He will use success to get into your heads and divert you from what God wants you to do. That is what happened. And so in other words, instead of maintaining a passion and drive to do all we can for God's glory, our zeal, our fire, is then replaced with complacency. We just become satisfied with where we are because we have arrived. Life is going well. Life is good. I'm, I'm, I'm good. I, I, I have a track record of, of, of being successful. We, we, we become content with religious status quo. I'm not looking to make a change because what we're doing is good. Why are we going to change something if it's not broken? Why are we going to make any moves if this is over here is working? We, we become content. And it's for this reason that I believe that, that God is leading us into a, the study of the seven churches. And, what Jesus, which, and, and to, to see what Jesus has to say about those churches. And when we look at what he has to say about them, it's teaching us about how Jesus evaluates us as a church and how he evaluates you and I as believers who are following him. He spells it all out for us. And so, in the letters, we learn what he loves and what he hates, okay? And he, and he evaluates each church. He tells them the good stuff, and he tells them the stuff that ain't so good. And then he tells them, then this is what you got to do to fix it. And then after he tells you what to do, you got to fix it, then he says, if you don't fix it, this is what's going to happen. The choice is up to you. I'm sure if God had to put it up, he said, now I want you to fix it, but don't make me have to go there. So, so he, 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 wants to, he, he gives him a course of action to fix what is broken. And the thing of it is, is that, if you, if you don't mind that me saying this, but it's the truth as we look along, along the landscape of the church itself, if we look nationally, internationally, too many churches that were once the flagship, the leaders in the faith community, who had a passion for expanding God's kingdom, who were out in the communities, who were drawing men and women, boys and girls into the community. Sunday mornings were packed out because they had a place to be. They were in the forefront of the civil rights movement. They were in the forefront of dealing with the issues of our communities and the issues of our people. If you look at some of where the churches are, they are in fact dying out. They're dying out. Because they have become distracted and allowed division and some were even caught up in the traditions of man that it causes them to come off, fat, off, off, of, off track of where God has directed them to go because they became stuck into the status quo of being content with success, not understanding that the enemy was using their success in order to draw them out. And now you have too many churches who are literally dying out because they don't even have young people in the church. They're dying out. And it's a reality. And that's not where we want this church to go. 
to be so irrelevant, so caught up on what it used to be, and not deal with the fact of where we're supposed to be. Do you understand what we're saying? And so here in Revelation, Jesus is telling us what we got to get right. It's an evaluation of where we are. If Jesus had to write a letter to you about your performance, what would it say? What would it say about your attitude? What would it say about your behavior? What would, it, what would he say? What would he say? That's a good thing. And what would he say? But I got art with that. What would he say? You got to fix this. First Christian, you got to fix this. You all right right here, but right here, this needs to be straightened out. What would you do? What would be in your letter? Jesus warned the church of these man-made traditions. And when he spoke to it, to the, to the Pharisees over in Mark 7, he says, you have let go of the commands of God and are holding on to human traditions. You have a fine way of setting aside the commands of God in order to observe your own traditions. But here's the thing about Jesus, and he's so gracious because he is our big brother, and he's always looking out for us. He doesn't leave us on our own to find our way out of our situation, but he has a way of coming alongside of us to show us what it is that we need to do. And here when we look in, in John, we see where he's giving John a vision, which we had just read, when he says to write on the scroll what you see and send it to the seven churches. So we see here that Jesus Christ... Um, that he, he is here in the midst and that he's over and he's talking to John. And then he goes into, let me see where we are here. I'm going to move down. Yes, what he's talking about, where he's walking to the churches. He's talking to Ephesus, Smyrna, and Pergamon, and Thyatira, and, and all of the seven churches. And he spells out to them what it is that he wants, them to, wants him to write out. And so down in verse 12, when we look down in verse 12, it says that um, Jesus said, I mean, pardon me, John said, I saw seven golden lampstands in the middle of the lamp stands, one like the Son of Man. Again, just to repeat, the lampstands represent the seven churches. That lampstands represent the seven churches. Seven stars represent the, the angels of the church or the pastors of the church, if you will. And here, if you look, when he said that Jesus was in the midst of the seven, stand, of the, of the seven lampstands, what it's saying is that Jesus is in the midst of the church. Jesus is in the midst of his church. He's not outside of the church. He's not at a distance. He's right here in the midst of the church. And he's right in the midst of the church observing what is taking place. He's observing and moving among his people, moving among his leaders, moving among the congregation. And then he says to John, I need you to now dictate this letter. And he dictates the letter, and the first letter goes out to the church of Ephesus. And that's where we want to park today, and then we're going to, we're going to deal with the others um, as we move on in the Sundays to come. Now turn to if, um, Revelation 2. Revelation 2. Revelation 2. And this is the letter that goes out to the church of Ephesus. To the angel of the church in Ephesus write, These are the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand and walks among the seven golden lampstands. I know your deeds, your hard work, and your perseverance. I know that you cannot tolerate wicked people, that you have tested those who claim to be apostles but are not, and have found them false. You have, you have persevered and have endured 
hardship for my name and have not grown weary. Yet, I'll hold this against you. You have forsaken, you, had a, you have forsaken the love you had at first. Consider how far you have fallen. Repent and do the things that you did at first. If you do not repent, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place. But you have this in your favor. You hate the practice of the Nicolonians. Oh, no, that's the wrong one. Nicolaitans. <laughs> Nicolaitans, which I also hate. Whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who is victorious, I will give the right to eat from the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. So the Ephesian church was the mother church of the region, and for that reason it would be most sensible why it would be the first one to receive a letter. Because it's simple, it's too much is given, much is required. So we are responsible. We have a responsibility for our talents, we have responsibility for our gifts and our callings, we have responsibility for our finances and relationships, and we have responsibility for the positions we hold. And here we see that Jesus is commending them for what they, do, what they did. Uh, this church, the Ephesian church, was, was, was on point as far as they, they weren't quitters. Um, they didn't give up. They didn't go throw in the towel when things got rough. They didn't tolerate evil or compromise the truth. The church of Ephesus was, was a loving church, but at the same time, they didn't compromise or overlook um, behavior and attitudes that were not in line with what God had, was teaching and preaching. Um, in other words, what they also did was they practiced this thing called church discipline. Church discipline. That's when there are conflicts in the church and we sit down to deal with those conflicts. It's when you know someone has an issue and you bring them together, let's have a conversation about what it is that's bothering. They, they practice church discipline to bring everything on one accord. That's how you keep, keep the church steady and you keep the church um, in harmony. They also were, they were about repentance and, and accountability and reconciliation. And also that you would note that the church also they had a strong sense of discernment. They could weed out a false prophet in a heartbeat. They didn't let anybody come up in the pulpit. Everybody wasn't teaching Bible study. They were, they were very good at determining what was true and what wasn't true, who was false and who, who was real and who wasn't real. But nevertheless, in, in spite of all that they had going for them, there was one thing that they had that Jesus had an issue with. And his issue was they had departed from their first love. And as he said here, consider how far you have fallen. So that means that wherever they were, they had gone a long way down from where they had started out. That means you can be doing all of the right things but had the wrong motive. Everything was right. But he said you had gone from your first love. They had fallen from their place. And so the Ephesian church, when you fall from your place, even though they were the strong church, that one weakness that they had could be deadly. It could be deadly because they were not operating at the level of love that God had called them to operate on. So the question we want to ask is, is this, is to ask ourselves, have we? Have you? Have I? Has this church? Have we fallen from our first love? Is it as fervent as it was when we first started out? Or has somehow or another it has not as fiery 
as it used to be. And if so, what happened? What caused us to lose our first love? And what happens when the passion we once had for Christ is replaced by other things? Replaced by legalism? Replaced by self-righteousness? And then the next question we want to ask, what are the signs or the indications? How do I know I've fallen? How do I know that my passion for Christ is not where it used to be? Especially when everything is going right. I'm doing the right stuff. I know. How do I know if I have slipped? So let us ask ourselves the following questions. Have you become content with just where you are and not really feel being driven by Jesus Christ? Are you just satisfied with where you are or, or do you feel a push or move for something more? Like more of him? Or are you just cool with where you are right now? Has coming to church used to be something exciting that you love to do, but now you just go through the motions because it's just become a habit? Have you, have you allowed others to sit on the throne of your heart and you just give lip service to God? Have others taken a place where God should have been or where God used to be? Do you love someone or something more than you love God? Do you find yourselves more concerned with your own desires and less concerned about what it is that God wants for your life? Are you more concerned with the comforts of the saved and not all that concerned about the salvation of the lost? Are you content because you got your place in heaven but who are you reaching out to someone who may be lost? Not only lost, but maybe someone who needs restoration, needs to be brought back in the fold. Again, the challenge last week was, can you bring a friend? Are you more concerned about where you are as far as your place in heaven than someone that you know right now and as we speak? They're not even sure they're going to, where their eternity is going to be spent. Which is more concern to you? Jesus warned the church of Ephesus. He says, if you don't repent, I will come and remove your lampstand from his place. What did he mean by that? He said, even as this church, let's take first Christian. He said, if you don't repent, let's say he's talking to first Christian. First Christian, if you don't repent, this is what we're going to happen. You can, you can keep the building. You can keep your little ministry groups. You can have your little programs. You can do all you want. If he's talking to you personally, he can say, you can keep your little house. You can have your little friends. That car you like, you can have that too. You can keep your little busy schedule. You can hold on to your little position. You can have all of that stuff. But what I will do is take my hands off of you. You can keep you can keep it. You can have it. Yeah, I gave it to you. 
You can have him. But what I will do is to remove my hand. I will take away my glory. I will remove my anointing. I will let you stay in what you're in because you made the decision. That's where you want to be. He could tell us that. I don't know about you, but I don't want to hear that. And I don't want to be in that position. I'd rather have his glory. You can take the building. You can take the stuff. Don't remove your hand from us. Because your hand is what has protected us. Your hand is what has kept us from danger seen and unseen. Your hand is what has delivered us. Don't remove your hand. Don't remove your hand from my family. Don't remove your hand from the, from the life of from your individuals, from those of you who are sitting in the circle. Don't remove. We don't want his hand to be removed from us because we got so caught up in doing our own things and caught up in our own drama and focusing on our own issues. Everybody got some issues. Trust and believe on that. Everybody got some kind of mountain they got to climb. Everybody got a battle, got to fight. The question is, what you going to do when you come to your mountains and your battle? Are you going to give in? Or are you going to stand up for Christ in spite of what you're dealing with? What you going to do? What I'm going to do? What you going to do? What we going to do? Because this is a we thing. This is a we thing. God will remove, God will remove all those things and he will leave us to go through the motions of life. We may look good, we may sound good, but to God it's all a front. We may say the right things, but if you're not doing it in the right way, it's a front to him. You may be preaching right. You may be teaching right. You may be giving your little tithes and offering. You may be coming to all of your little meetings, but if you're not doing it right for the right reason, it's just a front. It's just a front. So the truth of the matter is, is that the church is made up of individuals. The passion of the church will never be any greater than the collective passions of her members. Do I need to repeat that? Let me read that. The passion of the church, this church, first Christian, cannot be any greater than the collective passion of the individual. Look to the person next to you and say, do you have passion? Because if your passion is not there, the church is only as strong as its weakest link. If you have stepping, it causes the church to have step. If it's lax, guess what? The church of the whole cannot make it to its greatest point unless everybody's on the same page. And if everybody's not on the same page, then there's a problem. We can look good. We can sound good. But just imagine when everyone is on the same to the next level where God can take us. Not taking us because we just all caught again carbon program because we're caught up in him. Can I get the church to say amen? Because see, our level of commitment, your love for God, your desire to carry God's mission for this church is really determined by you and I. It's determined by us. And so here's the thing. God doesn't want part of our heart. He wants absolute reign over all of us. All of our hearts. He wants us to be completely surrendered to him. He wants us to love him like we loved him before. And then even not be content with that level of love, always striving to get closer into him. That's what he wants from us. He wants all of us the same way that he gave all of himself to us. 
He wants us to give all of ourselves to him. So I'm asking, if God again wrote a personal letter to you, what do you think going to be in it? What do you think he's going to say? Is he asking you to go back to the passion you once had for him? Is he saying, do you remember how grateful you were to be forgiven? Then why are you holding against someone, holding, uh, withholding your forgiveness against someone else? Is he saying to you, where is that fervor you once had? Is he saying to you, you know what, I could always depend on you to be where you're supposed to be and do what I need you to do. Why is it now that it's become an option? What is he saying to you? Jesus concluded the letter with, whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the church. We conclude the message with the same. Whoever has ears to hear, let them hear what the Spirit says to the church. If you can receive that, let's give, the, give God a praise and say amen. as the decision councils are coming forward. The decision councils are coming forward. I'm just going to ask anyone who's here who's Well, maybe you are struggling, you know. And I'll have to be honest with you, it's one of those things that we don't, we don't always want to let people know when we're struggling. Can we be honest about that? Yeah. We don't always want people to know when we're going to slip off the mark. And, you know, it's not necessary for people to know. That's between you and God anyway. But we just want to ask and want to put it out there because we're going to pray for everyone anyway, but we want to put it out there that maybe there's someone here and you just, you know, you just feel a need, a drive, or a push that you want a one-on-one -on -one contact. You want someone to touch and agree with you and pray through whatever your struggles may be, whatever challenges that may have come in your life that it seems has been a hindrance to you and has interfered and impacted your relationship with God. So if you are here, we just want to invite you to meet with any one of the decision councils, they were more than happy to sit and minister to you and to pray with you and walk it out with you. So if you are here and you would like to have that moment, we invite you to come down right now and just meet with one of the decision counselors. We also leave open the opportunity for those. Thank God for our brother here. Come on, let's give the Lord a hand praise. Is there another? Is there another? We have the opportunity for salvations in the house. Salvation is always available. It's always in the houses. Everywhere we go, we have an opportunity where you can come to Jesus Christ if you have not accepted him as your personal Savior. So if you are here, we invite you as well. Everybody good? Y'all got real, real quiet on me. Y'all notice that? Everybody got real quiet. But this is a special time. Is everybody good? Check with your neighbor to say, are you all right? Do we need to take a walk? Are we all right?
Do we need to have a one-on-one? Do we need to bring it to somebody after the service is over with? Go ahead and check with them and say, well, you good? I'm not going to... Just because you look good, you might not be good. Go ahead and tell them. You might look good, but you might not be good. Come on now, let's get for real, for real. <laughs> all right. So everybody all right? Huh? No, everybody not all right because y'all ain't talking back to me. Y'all don't want to come down here right now, but that's okay. We're going to pray for you anyway. <laughs> all right, let us pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we just want to thank you, dear Lord. We just thank you. For how you give us your word. You tell us what you're looking for. You tell us what you need from us. And you tell us how to do it. So God, we just thank you that you just don't leave us to our own devices and our own ways. And to try to figure out how to work this thing out. But we thank you for your word. We thank you for Jesus Christ. We thank you you don't leave us on our own. And that you give us guidance and direction and you do it in a loving way. And that even though it can be hard to hear, the truth can be hard to hear, but we know the fact that when you give us the truth, it's out of your love for us. Because your word says to us, you have said to us, you want no one to be lost. You want all of us to be spend eternity with you. So now, God, I pray that you bless each of your people who are here within the sound of my voice. That you will comfort them. So for those who are standing in need of comforting right now, that you just put your arms of comfort around them. For those who are in need of peace, God, I pray you'll give them peace. And I pray, God, for those who need to be shaken by your word, to be shaken up with the coals in, the, in their heart, to be shaken up in the fire, to be stirred up again, that you will stir them up in the name of Jesus. And that we will be on fire for you and not lackadaisical and just half-stepping. But do what it is that you have called us to do and to love you with a passion passion that continues to grow and grow. Now God, I ask you to be with these people as they leave from this place. Watch over them, I pray, and that when they reach their places of destination, that they will find peace, they will find harmony, but more importantly, they will find your presence. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Let the church say, amen. 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 God bless you. Have an awesome Sunday.